Hello, and welcome back to Never Stay Dead, your leading and most regularly updated comics podcast. I'm your co-host, Matthew Dergish, along with... I'm Damien, back from the great beyond, because I never stay oh, yeah. dead. And this time, we're talking about something of an oddity, something interesting that Marvel put out. We're talking X-Men Grand Design. By Ed Piscor, previously the author of Hip Hop Family. I, I don't even know. You, you that know sounds title. right. I, I honestly don't. Um, but this is a. Uh... That's what made him famous, though. A history of hip hop. Right. That's what put him on the map. Definitely. In in oversized volumes, so um, they put out two kind of fat issues of X Men Grand Design, and then released them in this oversized treasury edition size um, trade, I guess you'd call it, along with a backup of the first Stanley Jack Kirby X-Men. And uh, and then they're going to do two more, I think. That's what I understand, too. Uh, it was something of a confusing release schedule at first. My shop wasn't sure it was going on, because I picked up the first one, having heard of it only a week before. And then uh, I asked for them to put it on my list, and they said, well, the second one's the last one, so... Meh. And I said, well, that's not right. They're releasing more. It's just on something of a delay, I imagine. And they looked into it eventually and got back to me like, yeah, we'll put it on your list. It's, it'll be coming out sporadically. So, And will the next pair be number one and number two I again? I hope not. I don't know. <laughs> it seems very likely to yeah, me. Yeah, that'd be a shame. But you can... So Ed Piscor is kind of like a, almost an underground style cartoonist. Very detailed... In my opinion, very talented with his the things he does with panels and layout and stuff, but not at all like superhero comics. And clearly he spends a lot of time putting these together, which is probably why they released two and then um, have this long delay. Right. Uh, it's interesting because I don't think I would appreciate some of his talent if I didn't realize some of the caricaturizing that he was doing because he has these small tight panels that you normally see only in like autobiographical or history comics right and in fact apparently he got his start doing some of that um harvey p car off the streets of cleveland american splendor oh, comics cool. which are exactly that kind of thing you know the autobiographical small tight panels but then i have the treasury edition version so the panels i mean there's a lot of panels per page but they're easier for me to... I'm, I'm showing them to the camera even though we're audio <laughs> Old habits. Um, they're easier for me to see, but the pages are packed, some of them, you know, with uh, like four four rows of panels. or four, Yeah, four rows of panels often. It seems like every page I'm flipping to right now is four rows of panels. Um, and he does a lot of subtle little tricks with different panels that... When I was reading along quickly, I didn't notice, but then I flip back and say, wow, you know, he did something kind of interesting in each panel. Or not every single panel, but a lot of panels. He'll do some interesting thing that you haven't seen before. Right. And in preparation for this, I got a digital version of the trade, which allows me to see it even bigger than you have it. And it made me realize the issues are kind of a shame because... Some of the panels are so tiny, I could barely read the text. It was like reading, you know, some of those right. old fine print books. And blowing up the art, it's just 
so much more impressive because you can actually see it. So I I just love all the old comic tricks he's doing. There's a lot of old school love in here. Yeah, it's old school, but it's also a little bit R. Crumb or something. I mean, not in the transgressive sense, but in the kind of um, more related to cartooniness, an underground cartooniness, as opposed to uh, a detailed superhero kind of right. style. And, and he's colored this himself, and just like I believe he did in that hip-hop family tree, that's what it's called, hip-hop family tree, he, um, he's even colored the paper to look, the entire paper around the panels, to look kind of like old grainy paper. Which is maybe my one objection to it. The color kind of irritates me after a while. It doesn't really look like the color of yellowed paper, but it's this kind of brownish. I I, I agree. Shade. It's a wash that they put over the entire thing. And frankly, it does wash out some of the comics, some of the detail. I mean, it's obviously a choice, but right. it, it, I think it's supposed to double with the fact that you can tell the coloring was done to mimic the old... Um, dot matrix style that they had right so you kind of see the dots right i don't know i think it would have been i would have been better if if the shade of the page was a little lighter um i just found it for some reason psychologically oppressive after a while but that's just a small quibble really i shouldn't i want to make a bigger quibble about it because frankly the digital version is Uh lighter that that coloring is lighter for it being on the screen and it looks better for it. Well, one of my big complaints about modern coloring is I don't think the colorist or the editors ever look at the the finished product on the page before they approve it. They Everyone's looking at it on their screens, and if it looks fine on their screens, they just say, go ahead and print it, and often things come out quite a bit darker. Or colors mix differently. Or, yeah, when you're, when you're applying that, that level too, of yeah, detail... Yeah especially with color to a page, it's going to print different every time. But this is not like some of those comics that I some, somewhere sometimes get where there's lack of contrasting colors and you can't make out the images or anything. It, it works fine in the printed version. But I do think from what you say, I might like to look at the digital version and check out the colors right. that way. And even though he's mimicking the some of the qualities of old-fashioned, old-school comics coloring, he's actually putting in subtle little tricks that you could only do in Photoshop in them, too, where he uh, drops in patches of color and stuff in ways that they just didn't do back in the old comics. So there's a subtle interplay between the modern and the... Um, he, he definitely the chose fashion. a style, at least between these two issues, that remains consistent throughout. So it, it really helps blend it in a way that I think maybe sometimes comics overlook where that consistency of art helps tell a more consistent story. And, and what's beautiful is it's hard to piece together how much this would be because this first issue is the prehistory of X-Men. Basically everything that takes place before uh, the first issue of X-Men. Right, we should say that this whole X-Men Grand Design seems to be a a collating of the entire X-Men history. And I, because I have gaps in my X-Men knowledge, right. as probably most people do, am not sure if 
Piscor made up anything himself or every or if everything comes from some comic somewhere else. Because he puts in bits of history that no one knew back when issue number one of the X-Men was written and fills in stuff. So issue one is kind of the prehistory of the X-Men, which I presume is mostly called from, you know, X-Men comics from the 80s and 90s and beyond. And then um, issue two or chapter two in the trade is kind of summarizes the entire first run of the original X-Men, the the first, what was it, 63 issues uh, of the X-Men before Semi-canceled, they were canceled. Semi-canceled, right. I, in the we- one of the weirdest parts of comic book history, in my opinion. But um, we'll get there. So, yeah, so this prehistory, like you said, is mostly cobbled together 90s up, I'd say. But there's definitely bits from the 80s especially once you get Claremont coming in to help redefine the X-Men gives some that, but there's also right. some that happened within that original chunk. Most notably one part that caught my fancy. And before I go into this, I should note the trade edition does not have a listing that the issues do. So in the back of the issues, it will say on page, you know, one, this is what we're talking about, and this is the issue we're referencing. And so, whereas, uh, so I and I didn't have that access to that. So as I was reading, I didn't know uh, whether you know something that happened came from a from an issue from 1987 or 1965, right. for instance. Um, and I was wondering as I read it. So one of the things in the in the background that wasn't in the original issues is that the mutant master is searching for the person who's going to be the next host mm-hmm. for the Phoenix force. Does that come from some later comics or did uh, Piscor it, put that in himself? Da, 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 da. It, it definitely is something that was mentioned. My guess though, is that it's something mentioned in one, maybe two random comics much, much later. That was meant to build uh-huh. up something, and he took it and built it in here. It's kind of the spine of the story that, unbeknownst to everyone, the Phoenix Force is coming, and there's these aliens who want to, you know, capture right. the Right, and that's power definitely played up more than it is even if you're to look at the issues referenced for all this uh, build-up stuff. And a lot of this build-up stuff is sometimes flashbacks in a random issue. Definitely stuff between Professor Xavier and Magneto, you know, there's some of that. What's funny is on page six, um, for a part that I really enjoyed in Grand Design is when um, Magneto's still at the camps and it's World War II, Logan and Captain America come up on the camp and Captain America's shield is pulled from him by Magneto to take out these Nazi soldiers and they're both kind of just confused as to what happened. Yeah, that's page 10 in my version. Yeah, so that is kind of retroactively saying in the golden age of Captain America, there was Wolverine and Magneto in the background that no one knew about at the time. And that kind of sets the tone for the whole thing. There's all these things in the background that you would never find in the comics of that time that were... Right. Uh, One part that really built up for me uh, was... And like I was getting to earlier, this happened during the original run in backup stories was um, Iceman joining the team because Scott Summers and Xavier hear about this mutant who's in trouble because Bobby got in trouble for using his powers to pull a bully off of his girlfriend, basically. 
and he, he gets locked up and they pull him out and it, it, they make something of a scene like it's it's pretty sloppy but I thought that was such a cool story, and reading it in light of the recent Iceman run that just finished up, um, it's funny to see the characterization of Bobby's parents being much more accepting, and the only reason they want Bobby to keep his power a secret is because of exactly what happens, is all these people come up and they want to basically lynch the son, lynch Bobby, and so the X-Men pulling him out and making him safe is such a relief to them, not because they want to be rid of him, but they want him to go somewhere safe, somewhere where he can learn, somewhere where he can deal with this. Uh, a much healthier way than them just being upset at him for being a mutant and being a gay, but that doesn't come until way later. Well, so I, I think on the back of my edition, it says it would be a great, a great introduction to the X-Men, and I would say it's not a great introduction to the X-Men because it covers so much ground. I think it's a great book for someone who's gotten into the X-Men, you yeah. know, part, part way in, <laughs> has waded into the stream of the X-Men and now can pick up this book and kind of see that this is all this connective material that Piscor presents to us, that only a small number of X-Men readers would know all this connective material because there's so much x-men lore out there so this kind of brings it all together but you kind of have to have a sense of these characters a bit beforehand to appreciate and i imagine like with the hip-hop history whatever he was doing the level of research and connection made between these various events throughout the comics and this is complete there's one part where they're talking about something that happened to gene gray that happens in bizarre adventures 27 i've never heard of bizarre adventures before (laughs) <laughs> it was a black and white magazine okay. in the late yeah. 70s. Yeah, so it's very obscure is why I, <laughs> I happen to know that. Right, and even taking um, something from the Invaders in 77, you know, just this is comprehensive. And to read all this prehistory is understanding X-Men from the first through basically all of it i'm trying to find the like most recent reference in the back here and it's um i'm seeing 2002 is popping out at me like that is far and if you read this without having ever read any x-men before and say wow this is really interesting (laughs) but very dense material i want to read the original story in its more stretched out form you go in and start reading the first 60 issues of the x-men and you're not right. going to get the story that's here because though this this takes all the knowledge of uh, what is it you know 50 years of x-men and reweaves it together so it's it's really cool to see if you kind of understand right. and so to that i mean this. it's definitely not your first x-men story you know you want to read some good x-men stories you know, God Loves, Man Kills, Dark Phoenix Saga. Right. The classics. No. But you don't have to be an expert on the X-Men. I just feel like you have to kind of be familiar with the X-Men to read this. Huh. And I'm, I'm certainly not an expert on the X-Men. Um, I've, I read certain periods of the X-Men. And well, what's funny is reading this periods. and um, hearing more about the X-Men recently, it, it made me realize I thought I was a fairly big X-Men fan, but... I have more than a few gaps. And the X-Men 
have never really been consistent in a way that like a Spider-Man or Batman is, where you could pick up a comic five years later and more or less dive in. I mean, there's going to be the current circumstances, but once you get past that, you'll be fine. Whereas yeah, every few years with the X-Men, you're looking at different team members, different circumstances, different history coming in. It's one of the most dense right. and imparsible continuities in all of comics. I think the only franchise that needs this treatment more than the X-Men would be the Legion at, at DC. Yeah, I could see this done with the Legion of Superheroes. That's a good good analogy. But even I even the Legion of Superheroes doesn't I mean there's lots of great big stories in the Legion of Superheroes, but I don't know if it has the same level of threads going through it of like the whole Dark Phoenix thing and the whole conflict between Xavier and Magneto. These are kind of epic threads that go through large portions of, of and still the, aren't um, finished of the mythos of these things and right and never will be because someday of course these are serial storytelling <laughs> professor xavier was dead for a long time now he's back um and he's died before he died oh. during this early version right but it right wasn't really he's him. died it about as many times as gene has i think he's pretty bad for it most of the x-men are <laughs> worse than average as far as the death and return aspect which is something we have to focus on i guess <laughs> and sometimes with no colossus. explanation like when uh oh, what's his name Rasput colossus well came back that was the beauty of it right? as we no said it was that you didn't need it you just need the magic of the moment uh, silly. That yeah no i still think, think it's corny but a lot of people were <laughs> sold on it but then he went and killed well he didn't really kill but he dispatched uh kitty with the giant bullet which i think is one of the most ludicrous things in all of x-men uh, comics and that is a bar <laughs> anyway we're <laughs> diverging um <laughs> i think it's almost impossible not to diverge i mean this, this isn't is a, a comic we can sort of summarize and start from beginning to end so there there's this intense art that when you spend time with it you start to appreciate more and more there's also this weird narration that kind of is sort of but not exactly like maybe the narration in a documentary movie or something because it's in the present tense uh so it wouldn't be the way you would read a uh like a biography of the x-men in a in a novel or not a novel but a prose biography or something it's um and it's all, I guess, being narrated by the Watcher. But you I kind think of that's the beauty that of using the Watcher. To it um, is, I mean, the, I think part of the reason the Watcher was introduced was to kind of have an in-context narrator and have a little more fun with that. And they've they've played with that maybe too much since, uh -huh. but I, I think that was kind of the idea of having the Watchers to begin with, and so having this voice watching over, it, but letting you lose it because they're just following the story much as you are. I think is a good way to have it uh, as an omniscious voice. But yeah, so he's there for a framing device. You know, it's funny. I thought it was all in present tense, but now I'm looking mm -hmm. over the the panels and sometimes it's a lot of it's in past tense, but then there'll be present tense moments. Moira's thesis contains rare information about mutant physiology, which could be the key ingredient for Charles... 
Charles's secret <laughs> device. It's almost like way, reading Yeah, I mean, what's funny is every page is referencing like one, two, three comics. Like, right. Something that kind of bothers me too now that I think about it with the printing and going back is there they have this reference and so much is based on page by page. They don't have page numbers. Oh, well. Um, there are page boy. numbers in my edition. But like you mentioned page six right. with the Captain so. America scene and it was page 10 in mine. But because mine has right. you know, extra pages at the front because it's a trade. Um, so it actually starts on page five. So yours, so your edition mentions page 17 and then says it happened in New Mutants number one, but, <laughs> but doesn't have page numbers. My edition has page and numbers. And what's funny, I, no, no page no, numbers no on the issue where, where things came from. or the uh, trade it looks like, or maybe, maybe I'm looking at the wrong one. My trade has page numbers, but the page numbers well, may not yeah. Or So you have page numbers, numbers when there's no... Yeah, no, the digital trade doesn't have page numbers. Yeah, so I don't know, man. That's funny. So they the digital ones yeah. skip the bit at the bottom yeah. where there's a page number. Or at least mine does. I don't know. I That's just bizarre. And yeah. the issues don't have page numbers more confoundingly. An interesting thing about the trade is it has a little bit of back material showing comics he drew as a kid, which makes you realize that it's not just a cheap stunt to have this popular indie comic producer do the X-Men. He, in particular, was always obsessed by the X-Men throughout his childhood, and he wrote hundreds of pages of his own X-Men comics as a kid, and he shows them from different eras of his childhood. Again, I'm holding them up to the camera that only Matt can see, but... um, so you, you get a strong sense of how obsessed he was as a kid with this. So this is his kind of childhood dream to to bring his obsession of the X-Men into I, It's very obvious this is a labor of love. You couldn't assign someone this project because there's no way it could be worth the time. Because, like I said, the research that happened to put this together had to be immense. Even, having, even if he's read every issue of X-Men... Right. You know, closely before he still has to go through swaths of it again to get down the details and connect things and piece everything together. Even not, you can't just read things to piece things together. You'd have to be yeah making huge charts all over your walls Definitely. and everything. I, this is. I mean, if you know anything about X Men, you come through it, and just as a lover of comics, this is such a love letter to x-men in particular that i i think it's worth viewing in its own right it, it's worth its own weight even if you're not the biggest x-men fan if you've lapsed whatever check this out definitely so for ed pisker it's kind of a childhood dream come true i think for marvel they're hoping to capture this audience that buys things like the hip-hop family tree but maybe doesn't buy marvel comics and by replicating the kind of physical trade look of the way um, of the way the hip hop family tree is is done, 
So, and that's, you know, you talked about the floppies, the original comics in the comic book store were hard to read. I don't think I, Marvel was all along aiming for these bigger size pages to sell in the book market and the, right. and the indie I, market. Or well, I appreciate that and all that. Whenever they reprint those things, just put the reference pages in the back. Because those reference pages, beyond yes, being great yes. references and making you interested to go check out more X-Men, which from a marketing perspective... Those pages are worth their weight in gold. I'll, exactly, right. especially if, if you read or if they've read lots read of X Men, but not those X Men. Like, I, yeah, how much is the weight of a single page, and how much does gold cost? Like, they're worth it. Um, <laughs> two text only pages, or even if they're images, who cares? Yeah, it'd be two full back front side pages to account for the two traits collected. Yeah. Like that is. Nothing. Um, it's an oversight, yeah. clearly. So, beyond that, though, if they left the marketing potential here as much as I... I don't care about their marketing. What I care about is X-Men is something that I really enjoy, but when you talk about comic history, as I said, is one of the hardest to parse. If they don't follow up when Grand Design is finished... With an right. X-Men book, maybe relaunch X-Men Legacy, because that would be the perfect title to follow, is have something that plays off of some of the, the plot threads presented throughout this and play through with maybe a more classic return to X-Men as it has been and will be, as it were. But something playing off of all this being collected. Because if they just have this collected and then just continue with their blue, gold, and red whatever... It would be a mistake. They they really have a chance to pull something together and yeah. have a real definitive push for the X Men, especially now that they don't have any conflicting movie nonsense or Inhumans to push or any of that BS. I guess the question would be, you know, does Marvel have a coherent editorial vision <laughs> you know does is this ed pisker thing even connected to the regular um x-men right. editor as they doesn't matter anymore how the can they change over of, like of things is but let's i'm trying to look in the credits of this whether there's an editor mentioned there's just so many different people getting credits that i can't tell well special projects Mark beasley editor special editor, projects editor. perhaps yeah so anyway, um, I, w I think your idea right. is excellent, it and I, I would hope that they would do that, but I have a feeling they won't. I have a feeling there's great disorganization in things like um, all the different... And I, I don't want to go down too far, you know, if comics were just the way I wanted them kind of a thing, but I feel like this is a bit more salient. This is just saying you finally have cohesion right. to something that's beloved but confusing, and here's a summary play off of it yeah well and i'd love to know you know i'd love a list of the best trades of x-men to read after reading this ed pisker you know the ones that play most with these things because i know that there's been other x-men series that go back and look oh. at the early days in new ways I, okay i never read any of them but I know they. So, no, 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 no. Uh, this is. I have Maybe to break a rule you said before we um, started the podcast, but this is inevitable now. 
I should have seen this coming. So, out th- there is an X Men podcast I listen to called Battle of the Atom. They have a list of what they consider to be the best to worst X Men stories. <laughs> so, if you're looking for good quality X Men, go f- search Battle of the Atom. Their website should pop up. Look for the BOTA listing. The top, you know, so many will be be good places to dig in on some good X-Men for people out there. Right. Well, I'm thinking I want to look into ones that have kind of revisited okay. the meaning of things that happened in the early days of the X-Men. Because I'm fascinated now by this idea that the Phoenix Force was an, I mean, was kind really of something going on in the background all like, along. Like there's a couple and, comics that play some lip service to it, but it wasn't really they've built up the mythos too as they've gone along and a lot of that's uh-huh. been a lot more okay. recent well then so there's nothing with uh phoenix uh, i can't remember the name of it they had some phoenix thing where they brought gene gray back from the dead recently and that played a big part of that um the play up with hope and young gene gray was part of that too with hopeless writing all of that which was fascinating L- a lot of young redheads running around talking about the phoenix so there's a lot of that for you to dig into. <laughs> yeah, where's the bald fat guy who gets the Phoenix Force? When's that happen? I wasn't saying that, but we can <laughs> yeah, go there. Yeah, me. When am I going to get Phoenix? <laughs> the more... This is definitely something I'm going to reread. I'll probably read some X-Men, then I'll come back and reread this. And It's almost like a, a reference point to an anchor to, to reading bits and pieces of the X-Men scattered about i right now i want i'm craving to go back and read the last mm-hmm. bit of the original x-men run which was uh, mostly drawn by neil adams um with the Polaris. introduction of um what's magneto's daughter's name um, Havoc. Pol- polaris summers polaris well and, one uh, of brother the brothers got um Havoc. i'm surprised they actually so didn't add that in that a that bit more. Kind of, oh, there's another brother. So the Summers. third Summers brother was a long-running plot thread throughout X-Men that was picked up and dropped and picked up and dropped. So for the longest time, it was alluded that Gambit was the third Summers brother, thus the glowing eyes and the brown hair and the explodey bits. <laughs> There are things that are kind of oddly contextless or oddly emotionally adrift, emotionally unconnected. Like Xavier leaves, is it Dr. Matagor? Is it Moira who he has the baby with, who is Legion? So we just have him leaving her as she's pregnant. But it's like, huh? You know, that just comes. I know that that has to happen because later on we, you know, have Legion. And then we have Legion pop up, I guess, as a boy with the crazy hair. But it's not put into any kind of context. It's just there, I guess, because that right. happened early on. And now that you bring that up, it makes X-Men me realize that there's a lot of prehistory of X-Men that's skipped over because it wouldn't fit very well, especially anymore. There's a lot of Professor Xavier being a jerk five ways to Sunday and some of his psychic mm-hmm. repression that leads to Onslaught which is a big part of what happens in the 90s, but they don't mention it here because who cares about Onslaught anymore? Yeah, maybe they just don't even want to... I mean, even though he includes so much here, clearly he would also have to just make some editorial decisions 
not that not his editor making decisions, but oh, making sure. I mean, definitely. I mean, would you realize how many comics he's coming through? You know, page by page, it's yeah, it's one hundred percent him razoring down to what he feels important and nothing else. So what? What was the first X Men oh. comic you ever read? Well. The first X-Men comic I read, and to be clear, this is the 90s X-Men number one. Right. Now, Damien, do you know what my second bought X-Men comic ever was? Well, I happen to know it was Which also is... X-Men number one with a different cover. Oh, it's all good. I That's how I learned about variant covers, and I've never been more dismayed about a comic purchase. I cried, actually. It was... So back when comics were a right. large part, the price of comics was a large if part of your old, income, younger. so to speak. <laughs> How old were you, like nine or ten or something, or even younger? Well, and they were all gorgeous covers, and so I was just looking for it was cheap, and, you know, I, I pulled one, then I pulled another, and yeah, they were, they were back issues. I mean, not by much, I don't think, in retrospect, but they were in the bins and not on the shelf, because when I was a kid, I was daunted by the shelf and i'd only go and pick out back issues a usually could get them a little cheaper because that's how things were in the day and two i never wanted to pick up a storyline i couldn't complete and you i mean you started in the age of completion (laughs) i started in the age of no way was there going to be completion and so my first x-men was actually not the x-men but it was um, Amazing Adventures starring the Beast. And he had blue fur. And I had no idea who he was. And he was battling, um, uh, you I know, Kane Marco, Kane Marco, the, Marco um, juggernaut. the Juggernaut. He was battling Juggernaut <laughs> by himself. Well, <laughs> I didn't even I know you. he was Kane Marco at the time. It's just one of those brain farts there where I couldn't get the word Juggernaut out of my head. But and then I found the the current X Men that were actually reprints was the next thing I found after that. So I went from the Beast being blue furred huh. to the the Beast being drawn by maybe Warner Roth or something from the middle of the uh, the run of the Silver Age X Men, <laughs> and I had no idea that the Beast was the same person. It took me forever to figure that out. Um, but eventually, but I figured it was all connected because one of my early issues there had the juggernaut in it. So when I was a kid, I loved the juggernaut, but for me, uh, the big juggernaut story was that, uh, Spider-Man one where he gets stuck in concrete spoilers. Ah, is, it is that Jr.? the one drawn by John Romita Jr.? Roy Thomas. Well, and to keep going on juggernaut during the Australian phase of X-Men, there's a two part juggernaut story. Oh, my favorite factoid of the Juggernaut comes from there. He's a huge Dazzler fan. I totally miss that. (laughs) And refuses to hit her. (laughs) That's hilarious. (laughs) Oh, man. I knew that at some point he became a good guy for a while. Oh, no, he did. That was later. Yeah, that's right. He did. A member of the team. I I spaced that. That is true. Um, And then also during the M2 phase for you 90s kids out there. Uh, J2 was one of the books in that lineup, which was Juggernaut's son, but he was a superhero with a chrome Juggernaut look and a plaid shirt tied around his waist because 
they had to make the most 90s looking juggernaut design possible. Yeah, I kind of loved all those early X-Men villains. I, I think maybe the villains, oh. well, that's often the case, the villains are better than the, than the heroes. Well, who were the early X-Men? Because they actually don't have that many in here, and they, they really play up the Shadow King. Um, well, no, Magneto and the Blob and Eunice and... Eunice was one Mastermind issue. And or Juggernaut. Two, and Magneto and Magneto and Magneto, but um, <laughs> the, and the super the adaptoid Evil or whatever right? he was called, the guy who got all their powers. Oh, um, I didn't even. I must have missed the issues where he actually became a member of the X Men. I did. That was new to me. Um, and you briefly had Quicksilver and Wanda as villains, but they were part of the Avengers for a while too during that. So that is actually. Touch they more. very quickly move from villains to heroes. I wonder what prompted that. I I would guess that that was Roy Thomas. Okay. Um, he loved to mix things up. So, it, it, I don't know. I don't know if it was Stanley or Roy Thomas, but I think it was Roy Thomas that's doing. Now you have me wondering. Um, maybe they can find out. So I have this book here that I haven't dug through nearly enough. Um, but those who are into comic history, especially for X Men. To do another plug, I guess, there's a handful of these books called Comics Creators On is the series, and this one is X-Men, shocker. And there's a list here of creators that they did interviews with, and Roy Thomas is on there, so is Stan Lee. And then a lot of the people you'd expect up through Morrison and Mark Miller talking X-Men. So I'm wondering if... uh, Did Mark Miller do X-Men or just Ultimate X-Men? Not that it matters, but I just uh, that's a getting good here. question. Um, my memory is not there for that. Or did he do Ultimate X? I don't even know what X Men he did. If I look real quick, it might be uh, telling. I'm not even sure. I don't. Maybe again, because even with the original run, I didn't haven't read all the issues. Is Mutant Master a character in the original run, or did he get inserted afterwards as being behind things? I swear like he'd have to be in there but i don't know i have to go back and look so and and if he was in that original run i assume he never appeared as a cthulhu like alien as he eventually shows up in the grand well that's a big assumption because we're talking early comics and anything was up for grabs (laughs) so to answer real quick mark miller was ultimate x-men yes okay yeah that was Anyway, that was that a good book? This book? The the Comics Creators of uh, X-Men? I assume it is. I haven't dug through it the way I've dug through the Spider-Man one oh, okay. yet. So. Okay. But uh, the series is good. There's one on the Fantastic Four as well. Shouldn't you care? It's a shame when you... I'm guessing with Stan Lee and Roy Thomas, they're not going to have a lot of... Uh, self-examination about what was going on and what went into the x-men but since those two set set up the kind of basics of the the series kirby was there too well kirby was there and then roy thomas came in after kirby stopped illustrating it and it was people like don heck and and warner roth but yeah kirby was there too but obviously you can't can't interview kirby anymore but none of those older guys well, I don't know. Maybe Kirby would, in the, in the under the right circumstances, kind of dig in deep. Right. 
But now that we know how important the X-Men have become to sort of American comic book history, uh, what was going on in the minds of Roy Thomas and Stan Lee and their artists is, is of greater interest than it would have been back then. Right. And what's funny to me, too, about this grand design era that we're covering, I mean, the pre-X-Men's almost more interesting the second issue of the 05 stuff, though it being summarized helps a lot because you're able to just blow through the interesting parts. Um, even across most X-Men fans I've heard from, this era of the Stanley X-Men is hardly the most fondly remembered. Most people don't have a lot of love for most of these issues. And even the first X-Men comic to most people is kind of forgettable, which is funny compared to most Marvel classics like uh, Fantastic Four or Spider-Man. You know, that those original chunks are hugely beloved, but for the X-Men, just not so much. Yeah, I, don't, I, I, I mean, I liked them when I encountered them, but I guess I didn't love them the way I loved lots of chunks of the Fantastic Four. I feel they were written in a clunkier way. Like they they were trying to do more soap opera, but maybe they weren't very good well, at it. Well, it doesn't feel like kind of the mission statement of what we know the X-Men to be now was really put in place until after that run, which I think is a huge part of the reason. Right. It was put into place starting with the giant size X-Men and the new X-Men. And built era. slowly from there even. It wasn't just like right off the bat we're doing a right. allegory for racism directly. Right, the whole sense of allegory was much more deeply buried in the early ones. It, it took the later writers to sort of have an awareness of, hey, look what's going on. Although, Stanley will say that it was. Well, there. Stanley will say anything. Uh, so, um, yeah. <laughs> the idea of allegory in those early issues, I, I just don't think is there. Because when you look at Magneto... He was a straight supervillain with bizarre superpowers that would come and go throughout these early issues. A lot of these characters have powers that disappear. Yeah. Sometimes he could just make magnetic forces in the air that would surround people. Which he had no psychic sense. powers early on. Um, bunch of crazy. Oh, I forgot about that. But, you know, uh, in the little bit of dabbling here and there after reading grand design i found that there was a lot of references to what the mutants role was amongst the human race in relationship to the homo sapiens yeah. and i think it was just so clunkily done and there was so much repetitive boring stuff surrounding it that it just was less noticeable and then it was brought out and teased out more artfully and the characters were done better and all of that when uh chris claremont took over right i i mean i agree wholeheartedly i'm wondering do you have any favorite x-men stories you did read throughout the years after all this <laughs> in my memory i really enjoyed the late that later roy thomas run when he got a good artist which was mostly neil adams but there was also some good stuff by a few other artists in that period. Um, but I think that Stan Lee and Jack Kirby left the X-Men early on, and Roy Thomas was kind of a beginning writer. And um, he was just kind of learning his craft and trying to imitate Stan Lee. So anyway, that, that end, end period, I don't know the exact issues, that end period of the first run I think was actually quite good. 
with the introduction of Polaris and um, Havoc and where you get the giant monolith. And I think you have Sauron in there, the, the guy who turns into a paradoctyl kind of guy. And, um, and then I really liked, I liked the Chris Claremont era for a long time through sometime in the eighties where, you know, my life got too busy and I stopped reading comics for some period of time. I mean, I didn't entirely stop reading comics, but I, 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 for whatever reason, dropped off of a lot of comics at that point. So I think I may have followed the X-Men up through about, you know, from, when was it, 78 through 80, 88 or something like that. And there was a lot of, a lot of good stuff in there, especially in my mind when Kitty Pride entered oh, the yeah. story. I feel like it jumped up a big level then. Um, it's slow. I mean, the, the Dark Phoenix stuff, you know, the original Dark Phoenix story is quite good, but that's the beginning of the Kitty Pride era. And I think in a way, Claremont's writing gets even better after that, at least on the small details of character and stuff, even though his epic Shakespearean story has already been told in a sense at that point. Yeah, but I don't know. Um, I, I like a lot of the later. So there was, there was so much good stuff then, but it's all a blur now. I haven't, I've only reread the Dark Phoenix saga. Remember when we had that YouTube community project where we, where we did a group review of it. Oh, that was ages ago. Yeah. Yeah. I got to review the Dazzler issue. Congratulations. <laughs> that was before I realized I liked that. <laughs> I can't even remember which issue I got. But but then I, you know, I think when the Jim Lee era came around, I was buying comics again, but not a whole lot of Marvel. And I dipped into one or two issues around that time. And like you said before, when you stopped for a while, I, you know, three quarters of the characters were unfamiliar to me. And the, the whole storytelling mode was different with all these giant panels and people posing all the time. And I just couldn't follow what was going on. So I bowed out. And then my next memory is is Joss Whedon. And I read the Joss Whedon one. And, and since I had no other context, I know you didn't like it, but I enjoyed the Joss I, Whedon I one. should... It, compared to what I tried Hold to read on. in the 90s, it was very comforting. I need to comment on that, because I don't want the internet to just sick me. Because not liking <laughs> Astonishing X-Men is a problem. So, it's not that I don't like Astonishing X-Men. Those are some decent X-Men stories. I think they're completely overblown and overrated, because all Joss Whedon did was play on, in some ways, lessen things that Grant Morrison set up in his X-Men run, which is definitively one of the greatest X-Men runs of all times that I'd argue is the best era of X-Men. And I went back after that and read some of the Grant Morrison era stuff, and I probably should go back and read it all. And I remember liking it a lot, but it it was cold. It is. It was cold and harsh, and the Joss Whedon was warm and comforting. Yeah, it- and so it was kind of a shock to go from Joss Whedon back down to the Grant Morrison. Uh, so that's why I think I didn't... I was taking books out of the library at that point. Uh, that, but that's, and I was, again, very busy. But I enjoyed it. I thought the Grant Morrison run, what I read, was, was good. But, but the, I think Joss Whedon, because his name is so big, mm-hmm. brought a lot of us back to reading the X-Men after having perhaps, like I did, sampling it every now and then and being totally confused, then I picked up the Joss Whedon run and it 
it was comforting. It was just like the Chris Claremont run that I remembered in terms of the characters and the basic relationships and stuff. And it had this kind of cool art that at the time, I'm now less of a fan of, um, what's that artist's name? But anyway, at the time I was very into him because it was coming off of Planetary. Oh, John Cassidy. <clears throat> John Cassidy, right. Somehow lately when I see a John Cassidy comic, I go, oh, why did I like this guy so much? He but I used definitely to. has his moments. I, I, I think part of it is sometimes he just does better with books than others. Sometimes his style just fits in a way it doesn't always. Yeah, I think what I notice now is that the, his faces all look kind of blank or something even though they kind of have a photographic quality to them. Yeah, I can see that. I, but I don't think that's... He's also been less active. I mean, he pops up and then he goes away. Well, I, I think he just takes more time to draw a book than most, which is... Yeah, I think he's a slow artist, which can be a good thing when you read things in trade. Right. Um, but... He's here or there. I, I like him sometimes. I, yeah. I want to note, too, my favorite run of X-Men that I've read was Mike Carey's on just X-Men. Um, well, I should try that, because I love Mike Carey on more uh, non-mainstream things. I've just never tried his X-Men. And I should also note, that's a heck of a feat, because to me, it's hard for me to enjoy an X-Men book if Cyclops isn't there. <laughs> he's the one character yeah it's funny there was a whole period of everyone hating on cyclops but to me he really is the anchor of the x-men from the very beginning even even back in this stan lee roy thomas era i always found him the interesting character i mean they unfortunately now when i read it it's like every issue oh poor me cyclops but when i read it just in a spotty way the way you would read back in the bronze age you know an issue here issue there his problems in life felt very real to me. Um, his whole need to hold back and repress himself, you know, that was very interesting. Well, and that's funny to me because now a lot of people think he's dry and whatnot now that so many Marvel characters are all written to be quippy and witty and kind of all one note. They right. all, they all want to be Spider-Man in one way or another. And Cyclops being the way he was, though, when I was introduced to Cyclops was, again, X-Men 1... Uh, during the yes. final moments of Chris Claremont writing him. And he, he started to have a bit more of that dad joke kind of bit. So it was a little bit more, just enough to humanize him a touch that he would have come around to at that point, now that he finally was in more control and more comfortable with his life situation. And also he read older than most superhero characters you get. Right, I like the idea of him as kind of the oldest member of the active X-Men. Sans Wolverine. And I felt that way at times. Well, yeah. You know, when I was reading Wolverine in the in the 80s, mm -hmm. at least early 80s, it wasn't clear he was so... I kind of disliked the whole thing of Wolverine having been around so long and all of that. I don't know. To me, it's too much. I'm not going to fight you on that one. It is. It definitely okay. is. Origins is not a good comic for many reasons. Yeah. And I've read some other Wolverine solo comics where, you know, he can have a third of his brain ripped out and still recuperate. And all of that stuff just kind of drives me crazy. But because that's 
you know, I like the illusion that these mutant powers are actual mutations on the human physiology and not utter magic. Right. <laughs> but of course, most many of them are just well, There magic. has to be a certain level, and you cross a certain level, and I think most of Wolverine's healing ability is crazy enough, but the idea that... Right. Like, I- I've seen a couple times where it's been way too much. One time was just down purely to the skeleton, and at that point, like, well, no... And right. the other time was down to a single atom, and from that, what he regrew. <laughs> I, uh... It feels at that point that the the writers completely misunderstand what these heroes are about. I mean, the whole reason I used to like Marvel comics is it felt like the heroes had something at stake, whereas you know Superman. I'm, I'm now you know reverting back to my '70s reading. Nothing bad could ever happen to Superman back in the '70s. And I guess sometimes it's that way now still, but sometimes he's more vulnerable. Right. And and that makes Wolverine essentially, you know, it's, it's, it's nothing at stake. <laughs> well, it's funny because, yeah, Wolverine has that Superman problem that people complain about so much, but no one ever pins that on Wolverine. But back in the early days, you know, like if you were to read the Dark Phoenix saga, he is he's just this scrappy fighter. With claws. And he can take a good hit and heal, but he can't heal like in right. the moment right then. From you can't chop his head off and have him come right. back to life, but he can he can take a punishment that most people. But can. he feels the pain. Right, right. Well, and also they've turned him from someone. They may have turned him back, but with the last time I tried to read Wolverine, they turned him into someone who wasn't just willing to do some dirty work when it had to be done it was like he did dirty work all the time and was killing people constantly well which to me also just reduced him to no drama we're we're way off the rails well i mean they're bringing wolverine back the whole dark i i don't know the whole wet work thing that he was doing a la uh x-force X-Force by Rick. My only problem with that was they said X-Force, but it had nothing to do with the previous incarnations of X-Force or any of the characters at all, save one, if my memory serves. And it was just like, well, there's X-Force fans out there, and you're kind of just taking the name for nothing. But beyond that... But Marvel's done that a lot with the X-Men at this point, right? Uh, Often just reusing names that have nothing to do with the previous use. I don't know. I mean, there's only a handful that I think have a lot of salience, like um, Excalibur... X-Force and X-Factor now, though, I mean, originally X-Factor was the 05 coming back, and then it turned into Peter David's band of misfits. So, after that, I don't think people are uh, too protective. Well, so, back to X-Men Grand Design, I am now excited for the next volume. And at first, I wasn't you know, it was like, oh, this is just like some kind of dry exercise. But at some point, it just snuck up on me, and, and I really enjoyed it. So now, I, it's going to be hard for me to wait for the trade version. Although I like, since I've got the first trade, I'd like to have the second trade and not have the comic books. Right. Plus, from what we've just said earlier, the comic books are harder to read than the large size true. trade. Maybe, maybe I should get the digital and then and then buy the trade. I mean, at this point, you've already dipped in, so... You're causing me to spend more money. 
because I wouldn't have, I would not have gotten this X Men Grand Design. I've pretty much stopped trying to read the X Men. <laughs> it's an understandable impulse. I remember when they relaunched with this whole color coding thing. I was like, oh great, two books once a month, meaning two books a month. I'm on board. And then they were like, we're double shipping some, and then we're adding some other stuff in. And I was like, I'm out. Like, you have to have a controlled amount, otherwise it just poureth over. I say that buying every single Spider Office book right now, but that factors in right. too, you know. Well, I mean, you've decided Spider-Man's your guy. I'm not decided, well, but it's your... So that is the biggest temptation, and that... And Spider-Man's still easier to keep track of than the X-Men. <laughs> well, because, yeah, despite it being Spider-Office books, you know, it's Spider-Man across two books, and then Scarlet Spider, which is a book that is being written for me, I swear. Uh-huh. Is that um, Peter David? It is, uh-huh. and various artists, but they're bringing in the Slingers. They have a whole thing with Mysterio. It's so up my alley. If you ever met Peter David, I think you'd have to hug him. I mean, I could... Maybe marry him if you weren't already married. But... Okay, well, that was kind of... I don't have anything more to say about Grand Design. Is there something more? Any other thoughts? Or we, we run it into the ground here? I, I think we've covered it. You know, if any of our loyal listeners have any important notes about the X-Men they'd like to pass on to us, uh, where can they find you? They can find me on Twitter at sleepyreader666. I think that would be the best place to contact me. Plus, they can watch my videos, sleepyreader666 YouTube channel, I suppose. All right. Um, and where can they find you? They can find me on the tweeters at MagicalMat42. You can listen to my Spider-Man podcast, The Untold Talks of Spider-Man, wherever great podcasts are sold. And you can check out my YouTube channel, which is so regularly updated about once a year now. Uh, Wednesday Dormant, cereal. but full of a rich backlog of videos. Yeah, I was on there for about a decade. so Reaching back to the dawn of YouTube, practically. Uh, it, yeah. No, I, I need to get on do another video. I just uh, don't know what I'd talk about. <laughs> Actually, I have something, so <laughs> there's going to be one soon. Um, and I, I, I would hazard a guess that eventually, if, assuming this podcast continues, which I think it will, that we will probably touch on the X-Men in some other fashion. You know, because part of what part of our mission is to go back and read interesting classic arcs and things like that and there's certainly a lot to pick from in the x-men i agree with that except for the idea that we have any sort of theme going whatsoever and clearly we should only be talking about death and rebirth (laughs) comics i i feel like our theme is to sort of go back and read interesting things but we have talked about more modern things also we slip around through time (laughs) yeah there you go and and we never stay dead like the greatest X-Man ever, Cable. Oh, how I love Cable. <laughs> Good night, everyone. Good night.